sweet passage. If you were not with us, I encourage you, you can get the audio uh, online. It will be posted. And uh, we don't have time this morning to review. But last time we were together, we were in John 11, verses 1 through 16. And uh, Jesus is there preparing Mary and Martha and his disciples for this sign, his last sign of his public ministry, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And uh, you're familiar with John 11, very famous chapter. Um, but Jesus has been over in Bethany beyond the Jordan, on the eastern side of the Jordan River where his ministry began, where John the Baptist was baptizing. And Jesus retreats there after being almost stoned to death in Jerusalem by the Pharisees. He goes to Bethany beyond the Jordan. People come to him, believe in him there. And then he receives word. Um, Mary and Martha send to him, um, as he's there in Bethany beyond the Jordan, that Lazarus, he whom you love, is ill. Um, Jesus receives the word, and uh, he waits two days, and then he comes. And where we're going to pick it up this morning is Jesus now arrives in Bethany beside Jerusalem. There's two Bethanies. There's the one beyond the Jordan, and now he goes from Bethany to Bethany beside Jerusalem. And this morning we're going to come to the fifth I am statement of Christ in this gospel. Before he does the sign, he wants to make sure that Martha and all of us get the point of the sign. And the point of the sign is what he's going to declare this morning in the I am statement. So I've entitled it, I am the resurrection and the life. Christ unveils his glory to Martha in three stages. And that's what he's going to do. He's going to put his glory on display for us this morning. And uh, there are some rich, rich truths. So let's dive in here. Um, It begins, the first stage is when the glory of Christ is prefaced by a mournful setting. It's prefaced by a mournful setting in verses 17 through 22. And these verses give us some important details that, that now set the stage for the display of Christ's glory that is is coming. These verses, if you will, are the dark, black, sorrowful backdrop that is going to be the backdrop in front of which Christ is going to put his glory on display. It's going to shine even brighter because of what we see. So the first thing we learn about in this mournful setting is in verse 17... The late arrival of Jesus is just on time. Look at verse 17. It says, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead, had already been in the tomb four days. So Jesus has been in Bethany beyond the Jordan, and now he he comes. It's a four-day journey from Bethany to Bethany. Verse 3, he receives word, and rather than departing immediately, we learned last time that he stayed another two days there. After receiving word, he does not come immediately. But then, after two days, Jesus knows Lazarus has died. Then, he's ready to make the journey. But why? Why the delay? We said last week that his delay was motivated by his great love for them. It said, now Jesus loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus, therefore he stayed two days longer. Now what's the logic there? He loved them, therefore he did not come immediately to heal them. Why? 
By delaying, his glory would be put on a more clear and a more splendid display, and their faith in him would be strengthened in a way that would not have happened had he come immediately. And that's the most loving thing he could do for them and for each one of you. But why the delay of two days? Um, if he's a four-day journey away, then even if Jesus departed, as soon as he received word, Lazarus would still have been dead for two days in the tomb, right? So why does he wait two days? I, I think we get a clue. Look again at verse 17. Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Four days. It was customary for the Jews at that time to bury the dead um, on the same day as their death. Um, so you didn't wait a um, period of time. They die and you bury them on the same day. And so when it says Lazarus has been in the tomb four days, it means, means he has been dead four days. And Jesus wants to arrive this late with him being dead four days. Two would not have been enough. Well, why? Why not? I think we get a clue down in verse 39. Look down there. Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. For he's been dead four days. Jesus has come on the fourth day because by day four, the body would have already begun to decay. The process of decomposition would have already begun to set in on the body of Lazarus. That's why there would have been an odor. Some scholars also believe that at this time there's a Jewish superstition going around that said that the spirit of the deceased person hovered over the, the body for three days seeking a way to re-enter, but by day four, the body's already begun to decompose, it would be impossible. Maybe true, maybe not, but either way, the point is that by coming on day four, Jesus is making the point that what he's about to do to Lazarus can be attributed to nothing else. No superstition, nothing else. And also he's making the point that what he's about to do to Lazarus, whose body has already begun to decay, he will also do to you when you died and your body has been eaten by worms and decayed in the ground. That's why he's waiting until day four. His late arrival is just on time. He wants to come this late to make the point that he's going to make. So that's the first thing we learn in this mournful setting. The next thing we learn is that the presence of the mourners was culturally expected and divinely appointed. Look at verse 18. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So not only did burial take place on the same day, but it was customary that the Jews would follow the day of burial with six days of mourning, which mourners would come through to, to the home of the deceased person. Um, and they would come to comfort them. In our culture, we do it in the church or in a funeral <laughs> home. People will file through and, and mourn with and grieve with the uh, bereaved family. They did it in the home, and they did it for six days. And that's what's going on here. They're in the home, and they're, they're sitting um, as the, these friends are coming through to comfort them. So it was a cultural norm. It was also a divine appointment, though. 
The presence of these mourners will be uh, very important as the story progresses. The presence is here by divine appointment, so they would be eyewitnesses of Christ's sign. Most of them had probably come from Jerusalem. That's why it says Jerusalem was about two miles off. This is on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, just beyond. You go over the hill, Jerusalem is there. Um, these are people who have probably seen Christ, heard Christ before, rejected him. Mass rejection in Jerusalem, remember. And Christ is about to do another sign for them again. And a number of them are going to believe. Look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So this is mercy of Christ here. This is a divine appointment to give another sign for their salvation. But they're also here for another reason. Look at verse 46. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. God is setting the stage. This healing of Lazarus, this raising of him from the dead, will be the tipping point that leads to Christ's death. Um, from this point on, it's sealed. Um, they're going to take the word of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are going to begin plotting his death, and it is um, all downhill from, from here, so to speak. So it's a divine appointment. This is God's plan. That brings us to the final part of this mournful setting here. The words of Martha now are mixed with sorrowful confusion and unwavering trust in Christ's person. Look at verse 20. <clears throat> so when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to him and met him. But Martha, or Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. <clears throat> so somehow Martha receives word that Jesus is here. Jesus is still outside the village. He's not entered yet. Um, but hearing that he's come, she, she runs out to meet him. Um, leaves Mary behind to receive the guests in the home and uh, goes, to, goes to Christ. And look what she says to him again. Verse 21. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In verse 32, Mary is going to say the same thing. These were probably the words that Mary and Martha said to each other over these past four days. If only he was here. Jesus was just here. He wouldn't have died. Um, wondering where Jesus was. Why did he not come? Notice in, in her words, however, she does not indict Jesus with wrong. She doesn't assign to Jesus any ill motive. She is confused. She is sorrowful. She does regret that Jesus didn't come sooner to prevent the death of her brother, which was so easily preventable. Jesus did this kind of thing all the time. And he loved them. But he didn't come. And Lazarus died. Why? Why? If only. Now, there's something very commendable in, in Mary and Martha's words here, and there's something not commendable. What's commendable is the posture of her heart, which is sorrowful and confused, and it does not indict Christ with wrong. She doesn't know why, and she doesn't question Christ's person or goodness or ability. Disciples, true disciples, do express their confusion. We don't know why often. Things happen like they do. Often they make no earthly sense. Why did it turn out this way? God could have easily prevented it. 
but he didn't. And when God does not intervene in the ways in which we would expect him to, while we're confused and sorrowful and grieving, true disciples nevertheless do not, or at least they should not, allow their sorrow to dissuade their confidence in the love and the goodness and the truth of Christ. Martha's confident of his love. That's why she runs out to him. She still believes he's the Christ. So she models a true disciple here. Confused? Yes. Disbelieving? No. But what is not commendable about Martha's words is her ill-founded faith and that which Christ never promised her. Look what she says. She says, if my brother, oh, my brother would not have died if you were here. She certainly expected that Christ would do that, but Christ never made her any such promise. And he never made you any such promise. She's here expressing her faith about what Christ would have done had he been there, but her faith was not built on any promise of Christ that he gave to her. And oftentimes disciples, when they are in great sorrow, are often tempted to cling to expectations about what God should have done or what God could have done, which God never promised to do in his word. So Martha here is a model, certainly a model of a true disciple, but also showing us what we're tempted to do. Cling to some expectation which Christ has never promised us. And yet despite this, she's still a model disciple for us. She perhaps had expectations which, which went beyond the promises of Christ, but what prevails is her confidence in Christ's person. Look where she goes next. Verse 22, she says, But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. <clears throat> now, I do not think here Martha expects Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead. I don't think that's what she's saying. I don't think she's saying, but Jesus, I know that if you want to raise him from the dead, you, you can. I think that's the case because we come to verse 39. She's blown away by the fact that he says, roll the stone away and what he's about to do. So what does she mean here with these words? I think she's simply affirming her confidence in the person of Christ. She doesn't know why he's late. She's confused. She's sorrowful. And yet, she doesn't doubt his person so different from the crowd in John, right? They believe Christ when he fills their bellies, when he meets their expectations. That's not true disciples. This is a true disciple here. She doesn't know why. She's confused, and yet she's confident in the person of Christ. That's how D.A. Carson put it here. Martha is not only persuaded that her brother would not have died had Jesus been present, but even now in her bereavement, she has not lost her confidence in Jesus. And she still recognizes the peculiar intimacy he enjoys with his father. An intimacy that ensures unprecedented fruitfulness to his prayers. It's a way of saying, I haven't lost confidence in you. I still believe in your identity. So that's the sorrowful backdrop what's going on here and Christ now is about to put his glory on display look at verse 23 to 24 now the glory of Christ is anticipated in this ambiguous promise verse 23 
Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So first, in verse 23, Jesus gives an ambiguous promise of a future resurrection. And his words have two levels to them. On one level, they simply anticipated the commonplace expectation of the final resurrection. His words sound like the comfort that would have been offered by any Jewish person. They're the kind of comfort that we offer one another, right? At a funeral, they're going to live again. The resurrection is coming. Um, that's how the Jews would have been comforting Mary and Martha. Um, there's hope. Yes, they died, but the day of resurrection is coming when they will be brought to life, never to die again. But certainly, Jesus is speaking on that level, that, and, and that's the level that Martha hears him on. But his words mean something more here. His promise applied to the immediate resurrection of Lazarus. He says, your brother will rise again, meaning about to bring him to life. Martha doesn't get that. She will. But nevertheless, Martha goes on now to express her hope in the resurrection as a final Jew. Look at verse 24. She said, I know he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. She's a faithful Jew. She believed in the resurrection. The resurrection was taught in the Old Testament. It was affirmed by Judaism. Jesus taught the resurrection on the last day. Look at this verse in Daniel 12. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. That's the hope. That's what the Old Testament looked forward to. And Martha's a faithful Jew. She believed in that. It's coming. But what Jesus is going to teach her and those watching through this sign is that the resurrection on the last day will be accomplished through Christ and for those in Christ. That is not um, what most of these Jews were believing. It's a development that he wants Martha and us to know. That brings us to the third stage now. The glory of Christ is revealed in his self-disclosure. This really now is the, the high point. We've been climbing a mountain to get to this point. Martha's affirmed her faith in the resurrection of the last day, and now Jesus declares that he is the resurrection and the life. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. It's the fifth I am statement of John. And out of the seven I am statements, three of them, Jesus calls himself Life, right? I am the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 1.4 told us that in him was life. As God incarnate, Jesus is the source of life. He possesses life in himself. He is self-existing, depending on nothing outside of himself, for life. He is the very source of life, eternal life, self-sustaining life, the very fountain of life. And he became flesh and lived and died so that all who are connected to him by faith might also partake of his life now 
and in the last day. And while Martha believes in the resurrection as a faithful Jew, Jesus has come to raise Lazarus in the way that he has in order that she and we would come to know his person as the very one through whom life and resurrection would be provided. D.A. Carson again says, Jesus' concern is to divert Martha's focus from an abstract belief in what takes place in the last day to a personalized belief in him who alone can provide it. Just as he not only gives the bread from heaven, but is himself the bread of life, so also he not only raises the dead on the last day, but is himself the resurrection and the life. There is neither resurrection or eternal life apart from him. That's the glory of Christ. He's not just the instrument through which God's going to accomplish this. He will be doing it through his own ability, the overflow of his own life. But he's not finished. He's going to go on to unpack the implications of, of this. Look at verse 25 through 26. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So notice he gives two statements that unpack what he means by I am the resurrection and the life. And the first one, death, does come for believers. You see that? Though he die. But in the second one, life comes first, and they never encounter death. So let's, let's look at these one at a time. Number one, because he is the resurrection, the hope of final resurrection will be realized by all who are in him. Verse 25, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Notice it's future. He will live. Life is future here. And this life comes despite death coming, even though he should die. So death does happen. And it is promised to believers, the one who believes in me. In other words, Jesus is himself the resurrection and therefore everyone connected to him by faith they'll die physically they will be resurrected and although you will have decayed in the ground you'll be raised just as certainly just as easily as Lazarus was raised but that's not all look at verse 26 now this is just the, the mountain peak everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In the previous verse, people live despite their death, but in this one, the same people in some other sense never die. Believers have already been resurrected spiritually. You, believer, have already been resurrected spiritually. And you have a life now that will never be interrupted by the grave. That's what he's saying. Life, eternal life, is not just something that's coming. It is the present experience for believers. You live now and you will never die. <clears throat> but what's that life? Life in John... It's always more than physical existence and death. It's always more than physical death. Death is being under the wrath and judgment of God. Alienation from 
God. But by faith in Christ, through the Spirit, you have been resurrected to life. Now, what is that? We've repeated this over and over through John. What is life according to the Gospel of John? There's three components. Remember any of them? The first one is the complete forgiveness and purification of all of your sin. Life. The second one, it is the possession of the Holy Spirit, which transforms, fundamentally transforms your whole nature. It's a new DNA. You're changed from a hater of God to a lover of God. It's forgiveness of sins, the Holy Spirit. And then number three, life is intimate fellowship with God. This is eternal life that they might know you eternal God in Jesus Christ whom you said. And number one and two are really just means to that end. Life in the gospel of John is knowing God. You can't know him while you're still under his wrath. You can't know him while you still have the DNA of the devil. But through the new birth, through the work of Christ, you've been given life access to knowing God now in this and Jesus says that those who have it will never die. If you're a believer, you have been resurrected. You have life now, fellowship with God, and it will not be interrupted by the grave. And Jesus moves on to ask Martha, do you believe this? And she affirms her, her faith in the Messiah in a way that's, all the disciples affirm it. You're the Christ, the Son of God. That's the goal of the book. So what I want to do in, in, in closing, um, we have a few minutes left. I want to think about implications for, for our lives. Now. Um, Martha is a model disciple. We've already seen a number of implications. Her faith in Christ, based upon the truth of his person, his word, the glory that she's seen, it's not dissuaded by suffering and all, all those things. Those are implications I want you to take. Um, but I want to zoom in on something else, specifically what we just talked about. Everyone who lives spiritually now and believes in Christ will never die. So let me uh, summarize it. Here's the main point for the implication. The enjoyment of spiritual life now will prepare us for life that is coming then. The enjoyment of spiritual life now will prepare us for life coming then. Or to say it another way around, if you have no enjoyment or experience of this life now, even in small measure, fellowship with God, beholding the glories of the Son, being progressively liberated from the domination of sin in your life, you don't have that now, then you will have no enjoyment or experience of these things then. The only ones who are going to get life then are those who have it now. When Jesus says you will never die, he implies that life is coming, the life that's coming is only a continuation of what has already begun for you now. But if there's no experience and no enjoyment of that life now, 
that not only will death really look like death to you because you lose everything that you think is life, but you will not experience life then either. The only one who's getting it are those who have life now. What does that life look like? We've already talked about it. It looks like forgiveness of sins, Holy Spirit, knowledge of God. I just want to zoom in on that, that knowing God piece. That is life, fellowship with the triune God. We do not have to wait to heaven to experience this. True believers experience it now, albeit weak and dim and foggy and coming and going and because of our weakness, our sinfulness, our corruptions. But nevertheless, we have it. Fellowship with God, knowing God. So let me ask you, when was the last time that you really had fellowship with God? If you're a believer, you are in fellowship with God, your relationship with him by faith through Christ. But when was the last time that relationship overflowed in an experience, a practice of fellowship? Fellowship with him and focused prayer. Adoration of his attributes. Confession of your sin. Receiving afresh his mercy and his love to you. Responding to his infinite love with love in return to him. That and so much more is what it means to know God. Do you know him like that? Do you experience that? I'm not talking about some mystical thing. I'm talking about real life with God that you have through Christ. It's the essence of life, and that's the life that will outlast the grave. But are you experiencing it now? So let me give you a few thoughts here. Um, These are taken from from John Owen, his work, The Glories of Christ. Mr. Reimer gave me the book a couple years back. It is a wonderful book. Owen wrote it um, at the end of his life. He didn't complete it before he died. Um, He's writing as a dying man Um, And he begins the book by helping us prepare for death. Um, It's a a good book. It's sort of unnerving when you begin. We don't talk like that. You would never get published today if you wrote a book like that. Um, But he does. And so some of these points are taken from him. So number one, how does this work? The enjoyment of life prepares us for a life that's coming. Number one, Removal from us of the fear of death. It removes the fear of death. Death is an unnatural thing. We weren't meant to die. It's unpleasant. No one wants to die. No one desires to experience death. But death as something to be feared has been conquered. Decisively through Christ and what he's accomplished, but experientially conquered in our lives in part by our present today enjoyment of this life. And yet how many there are who are held captive by this fear. Listen to to Owen. There are sundry things required of us that we may be able to encounter death cheerfully, constantly, and victoriously. For want of these things, or some of them, I have known gracious souls. That's believers. That's Puritan talk for a true believer. Gracious souls who have 
lived in a kind of bondage for fear of death all their days. Even believers can live out their lives miserably under this bondage of the fear of death. It's unnecessary. It hinders our flourishing as Christians. Some people are fearful of death rightly because life is not coming for them. But it's possible that those who do have life should even now be held captive by this because an abiding enjoyment of this life is so cold and dim and dull in their lives. So what about you? Do you think of death often? Do you intentionally shun thoughts of death, distract yourself with other things, be preparing for that day? Do you think of it in sweet terms? I know there's bitterness there. Is there any sweetness? Or is it all bitterness to you? Is there any desire to depart to be with Christ? There's a man that passed away a couple years ago now, Mr. Allen, Bob Allen. How many in here know Bob? Faithful man. His wife taught me Sunday school way back been here my whole life um, passed away a few years ago from stomach cancer and um, Maymay and I went over to to meet him and to, on, on his deathbed talk with him, pray with him he was just going on and on I, I, I just want to go, I want to be with Christ I want to see Christ, I want to see Christ it's a beautiful thing and I want to die like that I'm sure you want to die like that but that doesn't just happen on your deathbed it begins now. Mr. Allen cultivated that through a lifetime of beholding the glories of Christ. And we begin now preparing by beholding the glories of Christ. Growing in intimate communion with the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. Owen again says it like this. It is assiduous contemplation of the glory of Christ which will carry us cheerfully and comfortably into it and through it. That's the answer, my friends. Number two. The present enjoyment of this life will produce in us longings for its fullness. In death, we lose everything, don't we? Family, friends, possessions, occupations, dreams, hobbies, earthly enjoyments, we lose it all, and all we're left with is Christ. But for those who've seen his glory now, who've tasted the sweetness of fellowship with God now, that deal is gain. What does Paul say? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I lose everything, and all I have is Christ. Gain. Why? Because Christ and his glory outweighs everything we lose in death. What do we gain is Christ. Look at chapter 17, verse 24. Chapter 17, verse 24. This is Christ's prayer for you, believer. This is what is coming. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. That's what's coming, my friends. That's what Christ prays for you. That ought to be our desire, but it will not be gained for us so long as our sight of the glory of Christ now is cold and is dim. 
but for those who've tasted this fellowship, who've come to see his glory in part. And this is what we're growing towards, my friends. None of us are there. We're growing. That's why we're doing the Gospel of John, to behold his glory. Death is gain. They will never die. They will just go deeper in the fullness of the beholding of the glory of Christ. Owen summarizes it like this. All the things that are necessary for us that we may be able to encounter death cheerfully, constantly, and victoriously, we cannot have whatever we pretend unless we have some present views of the glory of Christ. An apprehension of the future manifestation of it in heaven. So expecting it, it's going to come. That's not going to relieve us here if now we know not what it is and wherein it consists. If we have not some previous discovery of it in this life. This is that which makes all things easy and pleasant to us, even death itself, as a means to bring us to its full enjoyment. That's how you prepare, friends. We have life. Enjoy the life. Experience that life. Fellowship with God in Christ. Behold in the glories of Christ. And that will never be ended by death. Finally, number three. The present enjoyment of this life will cause us to be maximally fruitful. Until Christ is your life, death won't be gained to you. And until death is gained, you will not be able to say with Paul to live as Christ. You'll be held in bondage to, I just got to hold on to my life. I just got to keep myself. You will be kept from being maximally fruitful. Self-denying. Letting it go for the glory of Christ. In obedience to him, bearing fruit. For his glory and the glory of My friends, because Christ is the resurrection and the life, you're connected to him by faith. You have already been resurrected spiritually. Physical resurrection is coming. You're still going to die. But my friends, life will never end for you. And the calling for you is to live, enjoy life, experience life, get to know God. He's yours. Nothing is hindering it anymore. Your sins are forgiven. You've been given the Holy Spirit. Get to know him. I love him become like him in holiness and in beholding the glory of Christ. Any questions, comments before we go? It's a sweet promise, friends. And Mike, a lot yes. of us when we were going over it, very unhelpful, but uh, they made me think of a quote from uh, Abraham Piper that uh, there is not one square inch over the face of the earth over which the risen Christ does not say mind. All the circumstances, but even even death, he cries out, "That's mine too." And so it's just really encouraging. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Yes. Um, could it 
think so. Um, in that context, it's pretty clear, I think, that Paul's talking about himself in the third person. Um, so just a way of humility. Because later in the passage, I think he makes it pretty clear that it's himself. In order to keep me from being lifted up, Paul says, God gave me a thorn in the flesh, right? So um, it's a good thought. But Lazarus certainly did get caught up there and see the glories of God. All right, guys, well, it's, it's time, so let me pray. Father, we love you. How good you are. Thank you for life. Knowing God, oh, that we would know you. Keep us, Lord, from seeking to stuff our souls full of the cotton candy of this world, social media, and things that cannot satisfy, that are not preparing us for death. Our lives would be to know you through Christ, in the Spirit, which is what we'll be doing for eternity. If there be some in here that are under the weight of the fear of death, if they be believers, encourage their souls. Help them to taste the honeycomb of the sweetness of your glory. If they have not yet experienced life, that they, by faith in Christ, would. Thank you for your mercy. I love you. We praise you. Prepare our hearts for the service to come in Jesus' name.